If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 2 to 3 this morning. You might be surprised by that. You're wondering how could Peter preach a full 45-minute sermon on a disagreement between two women. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. And uh, last week we looked at uh, Philippians chapter 3, 17 through to chapter 4, verse 1, and basically this idea of following the worthy and godly examples among us. And here we are near the end of Philippians. You have made it thus far, and we will be done, Lord willing, by the end of August before we start our series in September on the church. So let me read for us these two. I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look to these two short verses, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and behold glorious truths in your word. Though these verses are short, there is much here for us to consider. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would give us understanding so that we might walk in your ways and love you all the more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So all I really want to do this morning is look at these two ladies and the instruction that Paul gives here and basically five lessons for us that come out of this little encounter that Paul has here in verses 2 and 3. Five lessons that we can learn from a specific ancient dispute that took place between two women in the church at Philippi. Now, I don't know what your experience has been like growing up in the church, if you have grown up in the church. Uh, Maybe you've been a part of a church that split over disputes and quarrels that took place. And and often at times, what, what ends up happening is it usually starts very small. It's usually just between one or two or three people. And because sometimes we as Christians don't act the way we ought, It spreads, and it then goes through the rest of the church to the point where a church that once seemed to love each other, that once seemed to really want to be about the kingdom, has divided. And a little group of that that split goes off, and, and they try to go plant their own church. And as many pastors who I know have said, usually whenever that happens, none of those churches ever take off. Because they leave in sin. And I had the experience of this growing up when I was 18 at my old home church where two godly men in the church who were um, respected in the church, had great influence in the church, had a disagreement. And it almost destroyed the church. Thankfully, there were godly men there also on the eldership who knew how to handle the situation and they dealt with it according to the scriptures And from that, there was healing and restoration for the church. But they had to make a drastic decision. They had to remove one of the elders who was in sin. And not just from the eldership. They had to remove him from the church because he was that divisive. Division can destroy a church. A small little dispute between one or two people can have damaging effects for a local church. And so here in this passage, we have a dispute between two ladies. And I simply want to look at five lessons for us from this little dispute that took place. And the first lesson is this. Public rebuke 
is sometimes, that's a key word, sometimes necessary for the sake of the gospel and the purity of the church, the well-being of the church. Public rebuke is sometimes necessary. We've looked at Philippians so far, and we've seen throughout the book of Philippians that unity is a major theme. It's an emphasis in this letter. Throughout, Paul calls the people to be unified in their thinking and in their purpose. In chapter 127, Paul wants to hear that the believers in Philippi are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not only that, but in chapter 2, verse 2, he exhorts them to be of the same mind, to think the same thing, to have the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. In chapter 2, 14, he then calls them to do all things without disputing. Which means Paul's aware that the church is having issues in regards to unity. Now, we're not totally sure whether Iodia and Syntyche are merely an example that Paul uses to demonstrate the disunity that's taking place, or whether he addresses the two of them because their dispute, whatever it may be, is the source of disunity impacting the whole church. I think it's the latter, The fact that Paul publicly addresses both both of these women reveals the severity of the problem going on. Paul's willing to risk deep offense because of the severity of this dispute that seems to have affected the rest of the church. This is actually the only time in Paul's letters where he directly calls out two people by name within a congregation. It's the only time. Now, we don't know very much about these two women, except for what Paul tells us here. We don't really know the nature of their disagreement. All we know is there's some kind of dispute, there's some kind of quarrel taking place, and division seems to be happening in the church between these two ladies, and, and it's spilling over. It's spilling over into the rest of the church. Now, the reason we know that is because Paul commands these two ladies the very same thing he commanded the church in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells the people to have the same mind, to be of the same mind. But a literal, a literal reading of chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 2 sounds like this. It's clunky in the English, but this is what Paul says. Chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by thinking the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Iodia and Syntyche to think the same thing in the Lord. He's saying the exact same thing to the church and to these two ladies. Now again, Paul's not saying that we have to agree on everything in life. He's simply speaking here of the unity of purpose, the unity in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whatever the reason may be, Paul sees this situation as so dangerous to the gospel and the well-being of the church that he publicly confronts and pleads with these two women. You have to think about what this would have looked like at this time. So Paul's in prison. He writes this letter And then he sends the letter to Philippi. He's in prison in Rome, most likely. And most likely, he sent the letter with Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus comes to Philippi, and he most likely would have gone to one of the elders' homes in the church. And he would have said, I've come back, and I have this letter from the Apostle Paul. And so then word would have spread throughout the city of Philippi to all the Christians. It wouldn't have been like the city of Toronto. It would have been much easier to get around. And they all would have heard, the Apostle Paul has written a letter for us. And so they all would have gathered together. And most likely, Epaphroditus, or one of the elders, but most likely it was Epaphroditus, because usually the person who sends the letter or brings the letter is the one who reads it in Roman culture. So Epaphroditus would have had all the saints in Philippi together, and he then would have began to read this letter of Philippians to the congregation. And he would have 
told them, he would have read for them about Paul's update and how he's in prison, and yet, though he's in prison, the gospel is advancing, and it's emboldened other men and women to proclaim the gospel without shame and fearlessness. He would, he would, they would have heard about how Paul's desire is to magnify Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. He would have, they would have heard his exhortation throughout chapter 2 about following the example of Christ, that humility that Christ displayed by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. They would have heard about the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, these two godly men who, who Paul upholds for the church in Philippi to, to follow and, and base their life off of. And they would have read and heard, sorry, about Philippians 3, where Paul talks about his old way of thinking and now his new way of thinking and that he wants to know the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ above all other things. And then he would have come to chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now imagine if Kathy was one of them and Anne was the other. And all of a sudden, their two names are heard in the congregation as that letter's being read. And most likely, the church would have been aware of this disagreement ahead of time. I'm guessing you could have heard a pin drop in the room. But here's their apostle pleading with them to agree in the Lord. That's what it would have been like. You see, what you have here in Philippians 4, verse 2, is what we would call in the Bible corrective public discipline. Corrective public discipline. An individual or two people, in this case, are in sin, and Paul and the church has responded by seeking to correct them in their ways. Now, we don't know everything that's happened behind the scenes, It's very possible that the church was following Matthew 18 in speaking to these two women. So turn over to Matthew 18 quickly. Here in Matthew 18, we are given instructions on what to do when a brother or a sister in the church sins against us. And so Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So that's phase one of church discipline, so to speak. If your brother wrongs you, go and speak to him. Tell him he's wronged you. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. You've been reconciled. But look at what he says next. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It's gone public. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, Jesus is saying, if someone still refuses to listen After being confronted in regards to them living in sin, Jesus says, treat them as a tax collector or as a Gentile, meaning you don't shame them, but you treat them as though they're an unbeliever. They've given no evidence of repentance. And so now I'm going to treat you like you're no longer a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. Now, it's possible that the church in Philippi followed Matthew 18. We just don't know. And they were still unwielding, unyielding in their sin. And so Paul now writes this letter and he kind of does the last possible option. He pleads with them publicly. See, we don't know the full situation, but Paul did. And his knowledge of the situation led him to confront and plead with these two women. The Apostle Paul knows what division can do to a church. He knows what division can do in regards to the advance of the gospel. When the world sees Christians quarreling and divided, there's nothing attractive about being a Christian. But Jesus did say that the world will know you are my disciples by how? By your love 
for one another. So we're being taught here that sometimes public rebuke is necessary for the sake of the gospel and the purity or the well-being of the church. Now, can you think of another place in the New Testament where Paul actually commands that public rebuke take place? Any guesses? You can throw it out. Hmm? In 1 Timothy, he rebukes Peter publicly, yeah. But the one time where he actually um, commands that public rebuke take place is 1 Timothy 5, 19-20. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Do not omit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, why is Paul saying that? Well, most likely, it's usual that people in authority tend to be attacked more than the average Joe on the street, right? They're, they're in a place of authority, and so a lot of times they'll be maligned a lot quicker or easy, easier. And so Paul's saying, don't bring a charge against an elder except if there's an evidence of two or three witnesses. And then he says in verse 20, as for those, and I think those, the word those there are referring to elders, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So if there's an elder in your church, in our church, who is persisting in sin, Paul is saying you ought to rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest of the congregation may stand in fear. Meaning, if an elder doesn't get away with sin. You better think you better, you, you, you better be aware that you won't either as a member of a local church. But Paul actually calls for this public rebuke in 1 Timothy 5, 19-20 that the rest may stand in fear. This is completely contrary to everything that our society values and believes. Now, I'm not this morning going to give an explanation for when it's sometimes necessary to do this and when it's not. We just don't have the time for that. But, but in the fall, when we do our series on the church, I'm going to give a whole sermon to church discipline, and some of those questions will be answered then. When is it actually appropriate? When is it right for this kind of thing to take place in the life of the church? And here's, here, here's my prayer, that we would never have to do this at Royal York Baptist Church. But all I want us to see this morning is that sometimes public rebuke is necessary. And the goal is never to shame. The goal is always to restore. Paul's pleading with these women. In the Greek, the word order is a little different. But it captures Paul's emphasis more clearly. His, his really, his, his pleading to these ladies. In the Greek, the ladies' names come first. So in the Greek, it says, Iodia, I entreat you. Syntyche, I entreat you. His goal isn't to shame, but to restore. And you can see this by what else he says about them. He calls them fellow laborers in the gospel. He says their names are in the book of life. He loves these two women. He's not seeking to shame or to shun, but to restore. Which leads to my second point. Biblical love is vastly different than secular love. Biblical love is vastly different than secular love. When I say secular love, I, I'm simply meaning our, our current society's general understanding of love. What our culture thinks of love. I have no doubt that if this passage were new to you, or is new to you, a certain thought would come into your mind reading this passage. Paul seems to be misusing the authority he's been given. This is an act of power by Paul, not of love. In other words, on, on the surface to our modern ears and eyes, what Paul does here is we'd never consider this to be love. For him to publicly rebuke these two women in the presence of the church, this does not seem to be love. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons for why this doesn't seem to be love in our culture. And I don't have a time to unpack all of those reasons, but fundamentally, our culture's 
assumptions about love have affected all of us to the point that we come with our assumptions about love and God and judge God's love based upon our assumptions. So let me just give you two assumptions that our culture makes and sometimes we make about the reality of love. And, and this, these thoughts come from uh, Jonathan Lehman's book, The Rule of Love. And I'm just touching the surface here. So if you want uh, to deep, think deeper about the topic of love, what is love according to the Bible? And in contrast to our culture, I encourage you to, to read that book. So the first assumption of our culture is this. There are no moral boundaries. No moral boundaries can be placed on love. But love determines all the boundaries. It's an assumption. It's not proven. It's an assumption. No moral boundaries can be placed upon love, but love determines all the boundaries. So if two people love each other, why does it matter to you whether or not they sleep together? Love has become the determining factor on whether or not something is right, which means that love in our culture can justify all kinds of sinful behavior. I don't love you anymore, honey, and that's why I'm going to get a divorce, because I love this other woman instead. And our movies and, and our books and our culture celebrates being faithful to that feeling of love rather than being committed to the woman that you covenanted with. It justifies adultery. It justifies other sexual behavior. It justifies things like euthanasia. This person's suffering, and therefore we, we ought to help them and take their lives. Love has become God in our culture. But love is not God. God is love, but love is not God. Those are two very different things. The second assumption is this. Love and authority have nothing to do with one another. They are opposites. Our culture is suspect of anything related to authority. And in one sense, it's understandable. There's been a lot of abuse and authority in our world, both in religious institutions, the church, and also in secular institutions. Authority is seen as negative, whereas love is positive. Authority enslaves, love liberates. Authority abuses, love empowers. And this is why complementarianism, the idea that the Bible teaches that the husband is the head of the wife in Ephesians chapter Five, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for he is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is why complementarianism is not just offensive to the secular mind, it's incomprehensible. How can love exist between a man and a woman if one has actual authority over the other? Because that's what Paul teaches. How can love exist between two individuals in that way? It's absurd to the secular mind. But the Christian worldview tells us that a husband is to use his authority in such a way that it enables and empowers the flourishing of his wife and children. In other words... Paul's understanding is you use your authority with love. And here in this passage, we see Paul using his authority as an apostle. And, it, and our natural tendency is to conclude this isn't loving. But when you read the totality of Paul's letter to these believers in Philippi, all you see is a man who is deeply loving towards them. He loves this church. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ. He tells them they're his joy and crown. He says that though he wants to depart and be with Christ, he knows he's going to remain for their sake. See, Paul's use of authority in this particular situation with these two women is clearly motivated by love. Love and authority are not opposites. Here's why. God has supreme authority 
over the universe. God is love. That's not a contradiction. God has supreme authority and he is love. Love isn't some abstract idea that God subscribes to. He's the very definition of love. You cannot understand what love is if you do not understand the God who is love. So let's take Jesus for an example. He's the head of the church. That is, he has supreme authority over his bride. And he loves the church. He died for his bride. But as head of the church, he has demands. He has expectations for his people. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's precisely because he loves us. And he wields that authority with wisdom and love. You see, the Bible's understanding of authority is really simply this. To author to author. That's, that's where it comes from, right? Authority, author. It's to create. It's to help others flourish by expanding your own authority over to others. This is precisely what God did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He used his authority to empower them to rule and have dominion over all the earth. In other words, good, godly authority gives, loves, empowers others, it strengthens others, it seeks the good of others. As Jonathan Lehman puts it, godly authority is the operation of love. And and we know this inherently. We hate abuse of authority because we know the good that authority can give. We know that authority can be used for good in powerful ways. We know the good that can come from it. Whether it be a good teacher or a coach or a parent or a relative or a boss or an elder. When you see good authority, you're drawn to it. We actually as humans long for good authority. We long for godly authority. I love King David's last words in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 to 4. These are actually King David's last words. And this is what he says. This is, he says he got this from God. This, this is what God thinks of godly authority, okay? The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God... He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So when when a man or, or an individual or a person, whoever, rules with authority, justly, in the fear of God, God says, he's like the morning sun shining into your bedroom causing you to rise in the beauty of the day. He's like the rain that that falls upon the ground and and causes the grass to sprout. a, A good man with authority causes you to flourish, to grow. That's God's understanding of authority. Love and authority are connected. And in this passage, Paul is wielding his authority because he loves them. He's seeking their good. Sometimes, love reveals itself in a way that hurts. And I think here in this passage, Paul is revealing his love, he's wielding his authority in a way that hurts. But it has a purpose. It has a goal, which is their restoration. I remember as a young kid, um, I played sports day in and day out, every sport, but my favorite sport was hockey. And I wanted to play competitive hockey, um, but my dad would not let me. He put me in a Christian league because he made it very clear to me that I was not going to miss church for hockey. Now, as a kid, as a you know, six, seven-year-old kid, I did not interpret that as love. 
I truly believe that my dad, at least in regards to my hockey dreams, hated me. Like, he was against me. Because I wanted to play hockey. I wanted to play with my friends who also played competitive hockey. But he would not let me play. And at the time, it hurt. At the time, it was painful. I did not interpret it as love. But now I can look back at that experience and I actually do see it as love. Because my father was one, trying to protect me, but two, he was also from a very young age trying to instill in me certain values. He was trying to tell me, tell me that being a part of a local church is more important than being able to play hockey. Being a part of your local church and committed to your local church and being there on Sunday morning with, with your other brothers and sisters is more important than your dreams and your passions and your career intentions. He instilled that in me as a very young boy. I didn't like it then. But as I grew, and I was around 15 years old and the Lord got a hold of my life, my dad and I were able to talk more. And he saw the, the young man that I was becoming. And it was at that point where he said, if you want to play competitive ho hockey, I will allow you. As long as we have an agreement, you will never miss church on a Sunday morning. So if there's a game Sunday morning, you miss it. But you can go to everything else. And we agreed to that. Because I came to a place, I matured, where we were able to have that conversation. And so he, he walked me through that. But I would never have thought my dad loved me in regards to my dreams in, in hockey when I was a child. And yet it was precisely because he loved me that he kept me from doing that. What, what does the writer of Hebrews say in chapter 12, verses 5 to 11? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What, what's the writer of Hebrews saying there? Really, he's basically saying this. If the Lord doesn't discipline you in your walk with him, it's probably be because you're not his child and he doesn't love you. Because we just read the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. That is, not all the time fathers get it right. They, they're trying to discipline as best they can. But he, that is God, disciplines us for us good always, for our good always, that we may share his holiness. And here it is in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Or, all discipline seems painful rather than loving. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what Paul's doing here. He's loving these women by, in a sense, hurting them. Confronting them in their sin. The church is meant to be the visible embodiment of God's authority and God's love. And when we only live by one, we will neglect what God has called us to be as the church. We must embody his authority and his love. So public rebuke is sometimes necessary for the sake of the gospel and the purity of the church. Secondly, biblical love is radically different than secular love. Thirdly, the body of Christ is responsible for one another. Look at verse Three. So he calls these women to agree in the Lord. And then he says in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, 
help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. We don't know who this true companion is. It's possible it's one of the elders of the church. We just don't know. But Paul does know. And is it possible that the Holy Spirit made sure this individual wasn't named so that we could see ourselves as the true companion? That we ought to see ourselves as the one who is ready to be responsible and helpful to others in the life of the church, especially when they start to struggle in their life. You see, sometimes a dispute can be so severe between two individuals in a church, it requires another party to help to bring about reconciliation. Now, I realize that there are those in the church who are always looking to get into the middle of things. That's not what I'm speaking of here. They're busybodies. And Paul's instruction to those kinds of individuals would be very different than what he says here. But a good majority of us as Christians naturally tend to think that the loving thing to do is to stay out of people's business. But Paul demonstrates here by exhorting this true companion to help these women that we have a responsibility to one another as a local church. We are to a degree to get into each other's business. And this shouldn't surprise us. It's stated clearly in our membership covenant. This is what it says. I engage to watch over you, my brothers and sisters, in brotherly love, to remember you in prayer, to aid you in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the commandments of our Savior to secure it without delay. I also understand that if I am overtaken in any fault, I will be subject to biblical discipline which seeks my restoration. And all of that is just a summary of all of the one another commands in the Scriptures. The Bible makes clear that as a local church, we have a responsibility to one another. Galatians 6, 1-2 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one, another, one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is a burden to go after your brothers and sisters when they are living in sin and unrepentant. It's burden as a member, it's burden, it's a burden as a pastor. Or Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the writer of Hebrews actually is saying that your exhortation is utterly necessary so that your brothers and sisters are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, if the only reason you come to church is to hear good preaching or to take advantage of church programs, then you really don't know what it means to be a part of the local church. The church doesn't exist so that you might be entertained and have all of your needs met. The church exists so that you might grow with others in your knowledge and love for God. So we've seen that public rebuke is sometimes necessary for the sake of the gospel and the purity of the church. We've seen that biblical love is radically different than secular love. We've also seen that we have a responsibility as individuals of a local church to one another. Fourthly, even gospel-minded, mission-minded, godly Christians can succumb to ungodliness. Even gospel-minded, mission-minded, godly Christians can succumb to ungodliness. It's easy to read this text and assume that these two ladies were just immature, ungodly Christians. 
But the text seems to indicate otherwise, right? I mean, how does Paul refer to these women in verse 3? He he calls them those who have labored side by side with him in the gospel. They, They have worked tirelessly with me in seeing the gospel advance. He calls them his fellow workers. They seem to be, by all appearances, gospel-minded, mission-minded Christians. And if that's true, then we're confronted with the reality that it's not only immature Christians who succumb to really ungodly things. Even the godliest among us are susceptible to heinous sin. Even the most loving among us are susceptible to disputes and quarrels. There's a reason why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13, where he says, Now these things took place as an example for us. What things? He's referring to Israel's godlessness, their faithlessness in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some, of them, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let everyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Let everyone who thinks that they're okay, that that there's no way they could ever commit that sin, take heed. I think King David is the perfect example of this. God describes him as a man after his own heart. He displayed a faith that was like no other in Israel by taking on Goliath. I've been reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings and Chronicles, and it's interesting that King David is the standard by which God judges all the other kings of Israel. So over and over again, you you read in the Chronicles and in the Kings, this one, this king did not walk in the ways of their father David, but did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or this one did walk in the ways of their father David and did obey the Lord. And yet this same fearing, same God-fearing, God-loving, God-exalting man, King David, committed adultery, most likely rape, then tried to deceive everyone, and he had Uriah, the husband, murdered. This is the same man who wrote Psalm 73, 25-26. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you? My heart and my flesh may fail me, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and inquire in his temple. And he meant both of those things. David loved God with his whole heart. He wanted to behold the beauty of God in his life. He was a man of faith, a man of integrity, yet in a moment of weakness, he did what he thought he probably could never have done. And this is why it scares me when I hear Christians say things like, I could never do that. I could never do that. I could never do what that man did. If you truly understand the capabilities of your sinful heart, you would never say, I could never do that. 
apart from God's restraining grace, I know I can do those things. You know, I think of pastors um, over the last several years in kind of in our, our camp who have fallen into sexual morality, specifically adultery, and I don't know all the stories, and I don't, I don't make judgments on that. It saddens my heart, and, but it's a, it's a huge warning and alarm for me as a young man as well. But I often wonder if some of those pastors truly thought that they could never betray their wife and children that way. This might sound weird, but one of the defenses that I have in regards to sin is to truly believe that I know that I am capable of heinous sin. That I am aware that I know that I can do the very things that those pastors did. And each of you can do those very same things. You see, we often, when we hear those things in the news, we often think, like, how could he do that? And there's an assumption behind that that I could never do that. But friends, your heart and my heart even as saved individuals before God who have been bought by the blood of Christ, we crave the forbidden. We long for for the forbidden. You know, I've had a lot of married men say to me, I don't understand why I struggle with lust and, and, and look at another woman who I don't even think is as beautiful as my wife. And I said to him very clearly, it's not about beauty. It's about the fact that your heart craves forbiddenness. Just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They craved the one thing that God said not to have. You can have everything in the garden. All the other trees are yours. But you wanted the one. We are capable of heinous sin. And from all appearances, these two women seem to be godly women. But for whatever reason, they gave into their sin and they allowed their sin to control them. Even the godly among us can succumb to ungodliness. Which means, Christian, watch your life. Watch your life, as Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Finally, in the fifth point, in moments of disagreement, in moments of dispute and quarreling, the church and we as individuals need to remember our shared identity and inheritance in Christ. Paul describes these two women as those who have labored alongside him in the gospel. He considers them fellow workers with Clement and others. Now, this is just a Side note, free information. It's believed through church history, though we don't know for certain, that this individual Clement would have been the third bishop in Rome. That's what church history tells us, but we don't know that for certain. Whatever the case, Paul considers these two ladies as gospel workers, they're mission workers, but then he says something that he doesn't say anywhere else in all of his letters. He says their names are in the book of life. Now there's only two other times in the New Testament where Paul uses this phrase, or not Paul, sorry, where the New Testament uses this phrase, both in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, God promises to never blot out of the book of life the names of those who conquer. And in Revelation chapter 20:15, which is the great judgment scene, It's only those whose names are in the book of life who escape from being thrown into the lake of fire. The idea here is that God has a book. It's a record of those who belong to him, of those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and of those who will be vindicated on the last day. And Paul states here that these two two ladies are gospel workers and their names are in the book of life despite the fact that they're currently in sin. Now here's the question. Why does Paul mention these things about these two ladies? Well, I think Paul's trying to 
in his plea to these ladies to remind them of who they are together in Christ. He's trying to remind Iodia and Sintiki, listen, both your names are in the book of life, ladies. They share the same identity. And in our disagreements and in our disputes, which I know will happen at some point here at Royal York Baptist Church, we can so easily forget that the person that I'm in conflict with is a blood-bought child of God. That person who you're arguing with, speaking ill of, Christ died for her. Christ died for him. And when we have moments like this in our lives, maybe a good question for all of us to ask is this. Is this issue bigger or more important than our shared identity and our shared love for Christ? Is it bigger than that? Is it worth dividing over? So how do we respond? Well, maybe there's someone you're quarreling with in this church, and I don't know. Maybe you need to go and seek reconciliation with that individual. Or maybe there's a dear brother or sister in Christ whom you know is an unrepentant sin, but you've been afraid to talk to them about it. You need to be that true companion. Or maybe you have so wrongly thought about the love of God because you've been so influenced by our world that you actually need to repent of judging the church and God based upon the standards of this world and not by his own revelation of himself. Whatever the case may be, I pray that as a church we would strive for unity, for the sake of the gospel, and for the purity and well-being of our local church. May God make this so in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom you allowed this little moment in church history to be recorded in the Bible for us to learn from. That we could learn from the example, the, the, really the failing of these two women, but also the example of Paul and the others in the church. And I pray that as, as a church, Lord, we would truly be a people who submit ourselves wholly to your word in every way, even when it seems hard. Give us a deeper love for Christ that would override, so to speak, our differences and our disagreements, our preferences, that we would strive for the unity that comes from the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.